0: The Black Doctors Podcast highlights the stories of minority professionals with the goal of inspiring others. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with others, because the next generation can't be what they don't see. Tune in every Monday to hear our stories told by us. Hello and welcome to the Black Doctors Podcast. I'm Stephen Bradley, your host. Thank you so much for tuning in and joining us for another episode. If you enjoy this show, please head over to iTunes where you can subscribe. You can leave a comment or a rating or review of the show. And This helps us to grow and reach a larger audience and help more people with this information. This episode is going to be a little different. I know I typically interview other healthcare professionals and I honestly think it's a little easier to sit back and kind of listen to other people tell their stories and share the things that they've gone through in their day-to-day practice. I was recently speaking with Dr. Darko on his podcast, and he kind of encouraged me to tell my story. And I think that this is a great time to do just that. I want to tell part of the story, and one of the things I do receive a lot of questions about is military medicine. I have been on active duty for three years now with the United States Navy. I'm a lieutenant commander. And this episode, I'm going to dig deep and kind of tell my story about how I joined the military, and talk about my experiences thus far as a member of the armed forces. Before we get started, I do have to say that these thoughts and opinions are my own. They do not represent those of the Department of Defense or the United States Navy, it's just me out here. We have to start at the very beginning, which is a very good place to start, I suppose. So I grew up a Navy brat. My dad was on active duty in the United States Navy. He was a surface warfare officer. That meant he kind of drove and fought ships, if you will. He worked in the engineering department on a couple of destroyers and on aircraft carriers. And he was responsible for leading his team. And I think a lot of the maintenance and making sure the systems worked and uh, leadership, other things like that, that he was doing in the Navy. But that was how I was raised. We grew up moving up and down the East Coast. I was actually born in Philadelphia when my dad was stationed at shipyards there. So it was an incredible inspiration to me growing up. And obviously, I always had dreams of joining the Navy and kind of doing that because of the legacy set by my dad. So you can fast forward a couple years. I went to college. Initially, I'd planned on joining the service at the college, but decided to go to medical school and didn't have time to kind of sign up, I guess. Once I was accepted to medical school, I did reach out and try to join through the Health Professions Scholarship Program which is kind of the largest or most common way that physicians do join the military. However, I was a little late getting the application in and was not accepted into the program. I think, you know, everything works out for the best because looking back, I'm kind of glad I didn't enter using that route and entered a different way. I was at Howard for medical school, had a fantastic four years there in D.C. before continuing on to residency at the University of Chicago. As I moved to Chicago, I once again kind of looked into joining the service and what options I had for entering the military. I learned about the financial assistance program, which is a scholarship program. It does give some additional bonus money during residency. I think the numbers were about $60,000 a year during residency. Now, this is pre-tax, so I found out pretty early on what uh, taxes look like on that sum of money. So the program paid me this additional money for three years, and in return, I owed four years on active duty service. Contrary to popular belief, the Navy did not pay off my student loans. They did get me for cheap. Um, So again, it was just the three years of extra kind of bonus money that I received in residency with a four-year commitment once I finished residency. I was able to use some of that money to pay off some loans that I had and to invest it in other areas, so that was nice. Obviously, living was a little easier for me in residency. Towards the end of residency, I really, really, really wanted to go into critical care. That was my dream since being a medical student at Howard and rotating in the surgical ICU. I loved it. I knew I wanted to be an intensivist. So as I was preparing to apply to fellowship, I knew I was like, well, I should probably check in with the Navy because this whole time, like the last three years of residency, the Navy didn't really reach out to me. I was just kind of hanging out on my own, just, you know, living life, enjoying residency, enjoying Chicago. So I ended up Googling uh, a couple of different names and trying to research who was in charge of Navy medicine. which so is that's like a pretty much complete civilian. That's what I was at the time. In, in my opinion, anyways, apparently I'd re- I was actually in the reserves. So I found the name of one individual, and I sent them an email. Hey, I'm coming on active duty, but I'd like to do fellowship. Is it possible for me to apply to fellowship? And the reply I received back was, please use your official military rank and title when sending government emails. I was like, okay, well, fired back a response. Well, what is it? And they said, you're Lieutenant Anthony Stephen Bradley, uh, U.S. Naval Reserve. So that's when I realized, like, oh, I'm in the Naval Reserve. I guess I signed some paperwork for this. The individual told me the Navy didn't have a need for critical care anesthesiologists, So I was going to report after completing residency to fulfill my orders. Cool. So about springtime before I finished residency, I actually got my orders in the mail. forgot to mention, so my little brother actually joined the Navy coming out of college. He did ROTC and he'd been on active duty for a couple years now. I was actually out visiting him. He was stationed in Hawaii on a destroyer out there And that's when I got the results for where I would be going to serve on active duty. I was able to pick from a couple of different places. And fortunately, I ended up at Naval Medical Center Portsmouth. It is one of the big three hospitals for the Navy. The Navy has three military treatment facilities, which are kind of your tertiary care level centers. And this hospital is located in Virginia. My brother had orders to work in the Virginia area as well. So that lined up and we're gonna end up living together. So I opened the orders, uh, you know, kind of work to decipher and, and see what they meant. Uh, I was supposed to show up July 1st, which was a Sunday. I finished residency literally on June 30th and packed up everything. The military moved all of my stuff across country uh, free of charge. It's one of the perks of being in the military. It's kind of a pain to fill out the paperwork and get all that stuff set up. But it got set up. They came and moved me out of my condo. And June 30th, I packed my stuff up and left Chicago driving to Virginia. Uh, June or July 1st was a Sunday. So I checked in July 2nd. I actually drove overnight, stopped and saw some friends along the way. Uh, Towards the end of residency, I had grown out some locks. And so those were down to my shoulders, but I obviously knew I would have to cut those before going to military. So I went and had my buddy, Jared, Jared Miller. He's one of my good friends. He was a surgery resident at Chicago. He's also a barber. So he cut my hair before I hit the road to go to Virginia. I showed up to my hospital, shaved because I was like, okay, I probably need to shave before I show up. And then I checked in to the hospital, filled out a lot of paperwork. I was like, okay, I guess this is the military. This is what you do. And that was that. So I started at my new duty station in July. So a couple of things happened next. One, I had to take my uh, written boards for anesthesia. So I had a couple of weeks to finish studying for those. And I wasn't credentialed yet, even though I'd sent in all my credentialing paperwork at the beginning of summer. I showed up and had to fill out the paperwork again, so I wasn't credentialed yet to work. I actually had never gone to officer development school, which is the couple weeks long program that teaches you how to become a military officer. How do you wear a uniform? What uh, are the kind of rules and regulations of the Navy? So I took my written boards and then left in late August to go up to Newport, Rhode Island for Officer Development School, which for me, it was kind of a blast. Like, it wasn't super fun. Like, there was a lot of yelling. And I'm kind of like, you know, I'm I'm a little old to be getting yelled at. Um, They kind of made it look like the movies, I guess. But the Officer Development School is for uh, staff corps officers, which are different from the line. So my, my dad and my brother are line officers. They are the real Navy, quote unquote. They drive ships and shoot guns or whatever. The staff corps are your JAG officers, so your lawyers, your chaplains, your nurses, your uh, your physicians. So our school was a little different than the typical officer development school. And, you know, they, they taught us some stuff in five weeks. We kind of learned how to march. Not really. Um, there was like some specific ways you're supposed to walk into the chow hall and how you eat your food. And they're supposed to teach you like discipline and military bearing, which was cool but I'd also just finished, you know, med school and residency. So I'm like, all right, if I didn't have discipline um, before this, then, then something went horribly wrong. But it was a nice kind of break since I had been in training for the last well, 12 years, really. So I enjoyed my summer there. And at the Office of Development School, I did receive the news that I passed my boards. And at that point, I was able to sign up for my oral board exam. I was able to do that before coming back to Virginia. So I showed back up at A.O. Medical Center Portsmouth. It's about October now and uh, still not credentialed. (laughs) So I sat around for another couple of weeks and finally my paperwork came through. I knocked out some cases in the OR. We had to do like 10 cases by ourselves. And then uh, immediately transitioned into working with residents because there is a military residency program there at the hospital every year. I think we get about six residents. So spent a lot of time working with them. There's also a student nurse anesthetist program. Usually they work with the CRNAs on staff. So stepped right into this kind of academic practice model. And that was, you know, kind of I was able to get my feet wet and just practice medicine or anesthesia for the next couple of months. The practice at my hospital is uh, pretty, it's pretty mixed. Um, a day or two of the week, I would spend doing cases in the OR. Probably one day of the week, i supervising the acute pain service with residents and we're doing nerve blocks. We're seeing inpatient pain consults. Every now and then I would do pediatric cases and then sometimes I would run the board so we have a board certified anesthesiologist as the OR coordinators or board runners so it's a pretty mixed practice for me where one or two days I'm doing anesthesia and then or anesthesia in the OR anyways. And the rest of the time I'm doing kind of this ancillary stuff, um, kind of gets you out of the OR, it gets a nice little mix to your practice. And occasionally, you know, there's the calls where you stay in-house overnight. So that went on until about the spring of 2019 when they did somebody go down to Guantanamo Bay. So on Guantanamo Bay, there's a naval hospital there and they're usually staffed with a CRNA and an anesthesiologist. And whenever they need to take leave, then somebody has to come down from the mainland to kind of backfill That uh, physician or uh, nurse anesthetist. So that opportunity presented itself, and I was able to go down because one of my colleagues down there, the anesthesiologist, he had to come back and take his board exam. By this time, I'd taken my oral board exams and I had passed, thankfully. So I was fully board certified. And so I went down to Guantanamo Bay. I think this was in the month of uh, March or April of 2019, was down there for uh, just, just under a month. So flew from Norfolk to Jacksonville, Florida. And then there's a plane that goes from Jacksonville down to Gitmo. And it was an overall, you know, great experience just to kind of see the Island, um, it's totally separated from Cuba. I mean, we're, we're on Cuba, but there's no like visiting Havana, unfortunately I know. And I was expecting it to look like the scene from bad boys Two, where they were kind of driving and trying to get on base. Definitely didn't look like that either, but it was a good experience to kind of go around and see, the remnant of Camp X-Ray, where the prisoners of war were kept, or I guess we were supposed to refer to them as detainees. So the those that facility was still there, kind of in shambles. There's a whole new kind of um, prison that's built on the island, but has its own separate medical staff and didn't really go over there at all. The hospital at Guantanamo Bay was small, you know, had a couple of ORs, like two or three maybe, and it wasn't super busy. Like, I think we only did cases two or three days of the week, and usually those were colonoscopies or endoscopy. I think the month I was there, I did one appendectomy, and I think that's it for like general surgery cases. At the end of the month down in Guantanamo Bay, I was able to fly back up to Virginia. And it was told shortly thereafter, probably two weeks later, that I would be going out on the USNS Comfort, which is a hospital ship. So the hospital ship is kind of home ported here in Norfolk, Virginia. And there are actually two hospital ships. There's the Mercy and the Comfort. The Mercy is on the West Coast in San Diego. The Comforts on the East Coast in uh, Virginia. And the purpose of it is to do humanitarian aid missions as well as disaster relief missions. This is a ship that deployed up to New York for the COVID-19 pandemic. And these ships are converted oil tankers. They're massive. They're they're oil tankers. And they're painted white. They have a red cross on the side. And on the inside, they have several operating rooms. Uh, I think they have like 10 or 12 operating rooms and hundreds of kind of ward spaces, which are kind of bunk beds that are set up. But they have several wards. They have a couple of spaces for ICU Level level care. I think they had three ICUs on the comfort and a couple other services. So they had a CT scanner, you know, a bunch of ultrasound machines. They had a casualty receiving area, which was the emergency department essentially. They had different, uh, you know, sleeping quarters for the crew and for the staff. So I had about two weeks heads up that I would be going out on this humanitarian aid mission, and we were going down to South America, Central America, and the Caribbean to do cases for the the public, just humanitarian aid medical missions type work. So I was able to kind of get things ready. It turned out that I was going to be the department head for the anesthesia department and that comprised of myself, I think four anesthesiologists and three or four CRNAs and we all packed our stuff up. I kind of was figuring out how much equipment we needed to order and what cases we were expected to do, which was kind of hard cuz we didn't have all the information up front, but it was fine and we sailed off to uh in, in june we sailed down to miami stopped there I think the vice president came on board to poke around it was uh pence at the time we left miami sailed through the panama canal which is a cool experience and then i think our first stop might have been in peru or ecuador and we started seeing patients so this was a five-month mission and it was kind of rinse repeat uh all throughout the mission we did 10 different stops 10 different countries and each stop was about 10 days the first day they would fly supplies off of the ship we had deployed with the helicopter squadron so they would start flying supplies off the ship to set up a medical engagement site and the next day the surgical services team we would go ashore so the anesthesiologists and the surgeons would go ashore and start screening patients we would we kind of had strict criteria in terms of who could and could not be brought on board the ship but we would see you know about 80 to 100 patients on the second day of the mission and that same day the first group would start to be brought to the ship that third day of the mission we would start operating in the morning you know we do a pretty much a full day of cases run three or four operating rooms and do surgeries like cholecystectomies taking out gallbladders taking out you know lipomas mostly kind of benign stuff we would do a couple of cleft lip and palate surgeries for the capabilities, we had three general surgeons. We had a urologist that joined us halfway through. We had a native plastic surgeon. We had two ophthalmologists. We had a pediatric surgeon. Um, we had a couple of other physicians from other countries. We had a OMFS guy from Canada, as well as, well as our own oral maxillofacial surgeons. We also had a uh, op- ophthalmologist from Mexico who was with us for most of the trip. So we would just operate for the next uh, couple of days. We'd bring on that group the night before for, of patients. They'd be NPO at midnight. We'd take them to the OR the next day. They would spend the night and then leave the next morning. That same day, they'd bring on another group of patients who would spend the night, and they would be the patients that would get operated on the next day. So it's kind of a round-robin deal. and end up being about five days of, of surgeries. We're averaging about 20 cases a day is about 100 cases per mission stop. So it was a very interesting experience. Unfortunately, we didn't really get to experience a lot of the cultures of the countries we went to because we would literally just go off the ship one day usually and spend the whole time at this engagement site screening patients. Then we'd spend the rest of the time on the ship. So even though you could see these beautiful countries from the from you know sitting in their harbors, you, you really didn't get a chance to experience any of it. We weren't allowed to get off the ship. We were just there to kind of work and operate and and help people. So we did this for 10 different countries. They sprinkled in two Liberty ports in there. One was in Costa Rica where we had like three days to get off the ship and explore uh with you know a laundry list of rules and regulations and then we had another stop in curacao beautiful country and my girlfriend at the time was able to when well, now she's my fiance but she came down and we were able to spend some time in curacao so it was a fantastic break it really really helped our relationship because it was hard to kind of communicate because of the distance and the cell phone reception was was Pretty bad in a lot of these countries since we were out to sea a little bit in the harbor. And then when we were underway going from country to country, then there was just no service at all. There's barely even any internet access. It was all kind of dial up from the ship. So we finished up that mission trip, came back to Virginia. This would have been kind of winter of 2019. Um, We were able to spend some time together. I think I Travel took some trips. Kind of got reintegrated into the medical system there at my hospital, and went back to working in the ORs. Typical schedule, ORs, OR coordinator, acute pain service, OB anesthesia. Just kind of rotating around doing whatever they needed to do. Then in the spring of 2020, you know, we kind of watched as the COVID-19 pandemic flared up across the the globe, and eventually came to the United States, and and everything just blew up in the spring. So I was able to work to make kind of contingency plans for our COVID response. And initially it was going to be going back on the comfort to go up to New York when they deployed. Um, there's a long story that goes along with that, that I'll probably tell at some other point in time when I'm no longer in the Navy. But long story short, I did not end up going to New York and went back to the hospital, worked for a couple of weeks, was assigned to go to a Field hospital, one of the field hospitals they were setting up, and then that fell through. So I actually was attached to a group that was planning to go to Iraq. It was a expeditionary medical unit that was composed of, I think, two surgeons, two or two surgeons and anesthesiologists, two CRNAs, two ER docs, some medics, and some other support crew, and I think maybe a, a physician assistant as well. So I was just the alternate for that group, so I ended up going out in the middle of covid pandemic. I think it was June. We went to Texas, flew out there. We had a full month of training in the desert of Texas where we shot guns. I qualified as a expert marksman for whatever that's worth. I'm um, not much of a gun person, but you know, we had to shoot because we were going overseas. Had to get some weapons familiarization, as well as some other training, some of the customs and courtesies of the uh, folks in uh in uh, Iraq and Again, it's just an interesting experience to kind of see and prepare and to think about that. The anesthesiologist that I was the alternate for, you know, stayed healthy and fit and ultimately ended up deploying. And I was just on recall for the next, you know, I was on like a two week recall while this group was deployed. So they were gone from the spring or the summer of 2020 and they got back in the spring of 2021 Everybody came back safe and sound. And then I was no longer kind of on uh, standby for that group. So since then, you know, I've just been working at my normal military hospital. You know, a couple of deployments have come and gone. And honestly, I've actually put in my paperwork because I'm coming up to the end of my four year service commitment. I owe just over uh, nine months left. I should be separating probably June or, or July of 2022 and actually going back so I can finally finish that fellowship in critical care. Really looking forward to that. Overall, you know, it's been a, a good experience to practice on active duty. You know, there's a lot of history there, there's a lot of legacy. You know, for me, uh, people always ask kind of why or if they should consider practicing in the military. For me, it comes down to your reason why you want to practice in the military. It gives you the opportunity to give you to do stuff that you probably would never do. Whether you want to, you know, work on a ship, whether you want to work in in an austere environment, if that's your cup of tea, then the military definitely offers you the opportunity to do that. For me, it was family because my dad and my brother are active duty. I really wanted to join and fulfill that family legacy. The one reason I say people should not join is, is purely for financial reasons. And, you know, it just depends on what's what's worth the most to you. Uh, as military positions, we do receive a significantly lower reimbursement as opposed to our partners in the civilian world. And if you join for money, there's a good chance that you may end up kind of disappointed or uh, resentful at some point in time if you're not making the salary that your other partners are are making. There's been a lot of opportunities to take leadership roles and to learn different things about leadership and just to see how an organization as big as a military functions. So, you know, it's been a good couple of years. Um, but I'm definitely looking forward to finishing up and, and moving on so I can practice in critical care, which has been the goal since I started uh, started residency. I get a lot of questions about military medicine. And this is just kind of scratching the surface because there's so much, you know, more to it about, you know, how does a rank structure work and how do orders work? And if somebody gives you an order that is contrary to your medical judgment and all, all these questions that I'm constantly being asked, And for a while I was kind of meeting with people one-on-one through social media. You know, they they asked me questions. We set up a meeting and you know, we talked for 20, 30 minutes, but it was just got to be too much. It was kind of too overwhelming to sit down and chat with everybody that had questions. Every now and then I try to communicate and convey this information through my Instagram stories, but more recently I decided to switch gears and I actually built a Patreon account, the Milmed Patreon account. M-I-L-M-E-D. And on that Patreon account, I've been posting little snippets, maybe 10 or 15 minute episodes in an audio format that answer questions that I've received regarding military medicine. Every month, I'm going to be posting a couple of additional episodes. And it's really going to be just kind of a, a candid conversation where I answer questions for different people. It is on Patreon. There is a small fee, I think, in the paywall really just kind of focuses the content allows it to be a little more discreet i can speak a little more freely than if i was just going to blast this across all of the internet and airways and social media sites Uh, not that i'm saying i'm not saying anything horrible and bad but i i do present a fairly unbiased direct viewpoint and provide answers to questions that a lot of people haven't heard you know a straightforward answer if you're talking to a recruiter They obviously have a vested interest in getting you to join the military. You really need to speak with someone, whether it's me, whether it's somebody else, that has worked on active duty as a physician. You'd be surprised when you look at recruiters. A lot of times they're enlisted, which means they're not physicians. A lot of times military recruiters are staff corps, which means they're like hospital administrators or nurse corps, so nurses. And again, they have never practiced as a military physician and they don't know the complex nature of our job in the military, the difference in reimbursements, all of that. So they really can't give you that unbiased but comprehensive picture of what it's like to be a military physician. So if you are interested in doing a military as a physician, I, I do challenge you to seek out a military physician to chat with. Check out the Milmed Patreon account. I have a link in my bio on my Instagram account, Stephen Bradley MD. Additionally, you can check the show notes and I'll make sure to send a, a link to the Milmed Patreon account there. Thanks so much for joining, listening to this episode. Um, hopefully, you found it helpful and informative, just another aspect of practice, and uh, tune in. Maybe later this week, I think I'm going to try to record another episode of Office Hours. If not, definitely check us out again next week here on the Black Doctors Podcast. The Black Doctors Podcast is a nonprofit volunteer passion project with the goal of inspiring all who listen. Tune in next week for another episode of the Black Doctors Podcast with Dr. Stephen Bradley, your friendly neighborhood anesthesiologist.